Welcome back to the podcast, chapter 14.1, Hail and Farewell by George Moore. Um, no discussion prompt, no discussion prompted, to be honest, by this chapter so far. Uh, Swim says the Mama Fishy did have some discussion, though. A much more charming George is on display here. The link below is a review of Frazier's biography of George. It's worth a read as it gives us some background about George, along with a discussion about Hail and Farewell. Well, there you go. I agree, and thanks for the article, says Tekrific. I will definitely have a look at it. All right. Asymmetrical George Moore. The asymmetrical George Moore. Once numbered among the best-known authors and most controversial literary figures of his day, George Moore has been relegated to a footnote in the Irish literary revival of the first decade or so of the 20th century. His most important book remains Hail and Farewell, a doorstopper of a memoir of the revival. Hemingway included the book in his short list of prose works a young writer must read. In bringing more in his times to life in a copiously footnoted biography of more than 600 pages, Adrian Fraser has produced a fascinating picture of the Anglo-Irish writer, a man of many contradictions, immense initiative and energy, one of the most multifaceted writers of his own or any time. Okay, well... That's the intro to the article. It's quite a long article, so I'm not going to read it right now. But what I'm going to do um, is keep reading the book and close that. But thank you, Swim. Um, feel free to sum it up for us. What kind of guy was he? Why was this book so good, apparently? Um, would love to know. I'd love to know that. Okay, what am I doing? find that. Okay. Reading. Continuing. Chapter 14. The boat moved away from the pier, steaming slowly down the long winding harbour, round the great headland into the sea, and finding that we were nearly the only passengers on board, and that the saloon was empty, we ensconced ourselves at the writing table, and while dictating to her I admired her hand, slender with strong fingers that held the pen, accomplishing a large, steady, somewhat formal writing which would suggest to one learned in handwriting a calm, clear mind, never fretted by small, mean interests, and if he were to add a mind contented with the broad aspect of things, he would prove to me that her soul was reflected in the manuscripts as clearly as in her pictures. And it was on board that boat, and the next morning, when uncomplaining, she followed me to the writing table, that I realised how beautiful her disposition was. And when the last sentences were written... It seemed that the time had come for me to consider her pleasure, for she had never been in Dublin before and would like to see the National Gallery. We hung together over the railings, admiring a mantanga in the long room, and afterwards a hogarth, a beautiful sketch of George and the Third sitting under a canopy with his family. We talked of these and stood a long time before Millais, Hearts of Trumps, Stella explaining the painting and exhibiting her mind in many appreciative subtleties. No one talked painting better than she, and it was always a delight to me to listen to her, but that day my attention was distracted from her and from the pictures by an intolerable agony of nerves. The repainting and exhibiting her mind... Wait, what? The... The... Repose. And the unconsciousness of my animal nature seemed withdrawn. Wait, what am I doing? Why can't... 
Still explaining the painting and the... Yeah, sorry, I messed up. Um, hearts and Trumps. Stella explaining the painting and exhibiting her mind in many appreciative subtleties. No one talked painting than she, better painting than she, and it was always delighted to listen to her. But that day my attention was distracted from her in the pictures by an intolerable agony of nerves. The repose, the unconsciousness of my animal nature seemed withdrawn, leaving me nothing but a mere mentality. I, in a nervous crisis, one seems to be aware of one's whole being, of, own, of one's fingernails of the roots of one's hair, of the movements of one's very entrails. One's suffering seems, curiously enough, in the stomach, a sort of tremor of the entrails. There I have got it at last, or, or the physical side of it, added to which is the throb of cerebral perplexity. Why not run away and escape from this sickness? And the sensation of one's inability to run away is not the least part of one's suffering. One rolls like a stone that has been become conscious, and... Often on my way to the rotunda, the thought passed through my mind that I must love Ireland very much to endure her, so much for her sake. Yet I was by no means sure that I loved Ireland at all. Because before this point could I be decided, I had lost my way in many dark passages. But the platform was at last discovered, and there was Hyde, to whom I told that I had come over at the request of the secretary, having received a wire yesterday morning from him, saying my presence was indispensable at the meeting. He was taken aback when I read out the telegram I received from the secretary, and said he was sorry I had been put to so much trouble trying to hide his indifference under an excessive effusion which seemed to aggravate my disappointment. An extraordinary indignance of speech and an artificiality of sentiment caught my ear, and I felt that it would be impossible to refrain from an outburst if he were to say again, in answer to the simple statement that I arrived this morning, Now, did you come across last night? Now, you don't tell me so? Thank you, thank you. We will have a great reception. About the reception, I care not a fig. I came over because it seemed to me my, to be my duty. Did you know now it was good of you, but I am suffering something that words can't express and it will be kind in you to call upon me as soon as you have finished speaking. McNeil follows me. I'm sorry for you. From the bottom of my heart, I'm sorry. Well, Hyde, if you don't hasten, I'm afraid I shall have to go away. There is a trembling in my stomach that I would explain. Somebody called after him. A shuffling of chairs was followed by a sudden silence and wild whilst Hyde stood bawling, I saw the great skull, its fringe of long black hair with extraordinary lucidity. The slope of the temples, the swell of the bone above the nape, this insignificant nose, the droop of the moustache through which his Irish frothed like porter, and when he returned to English it was easy to understand why he desired to change the language of Ireland. The next speaker was a bearded man of middle height and middle age, forty or thereabouts, a post office official whose oratory was more reasonable and dignified than our president's, and perhaps for that reason it was less successful despite its repetitions and commonplace. But these qualities which I had begun to see were essential in Irish oratory, for were not considered enough. The audience missed the familiar note of, spy, of spite. McNeil was looked upon as good enough as small ale would be by the average comb tripper. What they want is porter. The feeling that my paper would interest nobody. I appealed to Hyde again and begged him to call on me and let me get it over. 
Before we could do so, he said he would have to call upon two priests, Father Meehan and Father Hoggarty, and these men spoke whatever happened to come into their heads, always using twenty words where five would have been too many, and they rambled on to their own pleasure and that, and to that of the audience. Snatches of their oratory still linger in my ears. I remember the language of the Father. Fathers spoke in time of persecution. Hermits and saints said their prayers in it which might be true, but some seemed to imply that since the introduction of the English language, saints had declined in Ireland. This next speaker, referring to the eloquent words of the last speaker, reminded the audience that not only not a line of heresy has been written in Irish, an ascension which recalled Father Ford's pamphlet. He must have been reading it, I said to myself. Now, will you call on me? I whispered to Hyde. I'm sorry, from the bottom of my heart. Of what use to bring me over to England? From the bottom of my heart, I must call upon Dash, and he called out some name that I have forgotten. The success of this speaker, when he declared that the dogs of war were to be loosed, was unbounded. In the vast and densely packed building, only a dissenting voice was heard. It did not come from the body of the hall, but from a man on a platform. A thick-set fellow, a working man, sitting in a chair next to me while Hyde was speaking. He had played impatiently with his hat, a bowler worn at the brim, and greasy and ingrained with dust very like Wellens. His hands were those of a joiner or a carpenter or a plumber. Yet I said to myself, he hears that our president's speech isn't as beautiful as it should be. It seemed to me that in the midst of some turgic sentence I had heard him spitting. Good God. Yes, yes, get on. Through the, his tawny moustache. We all know that, and I had certainly heard him mutter while McNeil was speaking. If I had known it was to listen to this kind of stuff while the reverend fathers were rigmaroling, he had only dared to shuffle his feet from time to time, making it clear at all events to me that he did not judge exorcistical oratory more favourably than lay, thereby winning my approval and sympathy and inducing me to accept him as pure, disinterested and very able critic who might possibly find him small some small merit in the paper which I began to read as soon as the applause had ceased, which followed upon the declaration that the dogs of war were to be loosed. Before five lines were read, I heard him shuffling his feet heavily, and at the tenth line a loud groan escaped him, and when I began my third paragraph, which to my mind contained everything that could be said in favour of the literary necessity of the revival of small languages, I heard him mutter, "'It isn't that sort of sophisticated stuff that we want.' And he muttered so loudly that there was a moment when it began to seem necessary to ask the audience to choose between us. His impatience increased with every succeeding speaker, and while wondering what his oratory would be like if Hyde were to give him a chance of exercising it, I saw him seize the coattails of a little man with a bibulous nose who had been called upon to address the meeting. Had such a thing happened to me, my nerves would have given me away utterly, but the little man merely lifted his coat-tails out of his assailant's reach, and when he had finished talking, somebody proposed a vote of thanks. Then the meeting broke up rapidly, and as we were leaving the platform, the disappointed orator put his hand on Hyde's shoulder. For two pins I'd tell you what I think about you, and Hyde was asked to explain why he did not call upon him to speak. Your name wasn't given to me, sir. Wasn't I on the platform? There were many on the platform that I didn't call on to speak. I only called those on my list, and you weren't upon it. A fine lot of blatherers you had on your list, and every one of us sick listening to them. The retort seeming to me to be in the fine Irish style, I was tempted to stand by to listen, but fearing to exhibit a too impertinent curiosity, I followed the crowd regretfully out of the building, wondering what Stella would think 
of her first Gaelic League meeting. And my first too, for that matter. <coughs> Excuse me. Alright. Oh, like, that's enough. Oh, it's such a short reading. But I just can't. I just can't. Like, it's, um, that's, what's that, 12 minutes? Oh, I'm in two minds. Like, I want to get this book finished as quick as possible, but also, like, I can't stand, like, uh, just the feeling of, you know, when you've got a baby, you know, you only get so many minutes uh, free per day. And just 12 minutes of them on this is, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. This guy's, this guy's wasting my precious minutes. And I can't stand an author who doesn't attempt to entertain me. It's just, it's just watching someone masturbate. (laughs) Is what this is. Like, he's just doing this for his own pleasure. He's got no care of whether we enjoy this writing or not. Um, sorry for that awful analogy, but that's what we're doing. And you know what? He's not even good at it. It's not even worth watching. <laughs> um, sorry. I mean, I know that some people are enjoying this book. It's apparently a fantastic book. It's just not my kind of book. Uh, so yeah, that's what I mean. I'm in two minds. Like I'm desperate to stop reading every night because it just bores the life out of me. And at the same time, I'm desperate to keep reading to get through it quicker. But for tonight, that's where I'm pulling the plug. Maybe tomorrow I'll do a bit of a marathon one and finish the chapter. Thanks for listening anyway. See you tomorrow.